Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, how does cancer impact the fundamentals of wellness? Redefining that idea of contentment and peace oftentimes comes back to a simple thing like, you know, for today, how do we make today a more contented and peaceful day? A stroke neurologist explains how to reduce your stroke risk. High blood pressure is a, a huge, is, is, is big, big bag risk factor, uh, and smoking is as well. And a pulmonary physiologist discusses acute respiratory distress syndrome. It's a very serious disease. Uh, it actually kills more people than HIV or breast cancer every year. All that, plus a visit from the Healing Muse, after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, a stroke neurologist explains what you can do to reduce your stroke risk. Then we'll hear how acute respiratory distress syndrome is similar to and different from severe cases of COVID-19. But first, Dr. Koshal Nanavati is here to talk about cancer's impact on the fundamentals of wellness. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Dr. Koshal Nanavati talks about nutrition, physical exercise, stress management, and spiritual wellness as the core four fundamentals of wellness. Today, I'm asking him what happens to the core four when there's a cancer diagnosis. Dr. Nanavati is the Assistant Dean of Wellness at Upstate, an Assistant Professor of Family Medicine, and Medical Director of Integrative Therapy. He's also a frequent guest on HealthLink on Air. Thank you for being here, Dr. Nanavati. Thanks for having me again, Amber. I appreciate it. So some of your patients have cancer. How do the core four fundamentals of wellness apply to someone with a cancer diagnosis? Well, and I've had the privilege of also being the director of the survivorship program at our upstate cancer center. So I've uh, been working with cancer patients more specifically over the last, uh, well, 10 years now, going on 10 years. And, you know, what's interesting is uh, these are some of the most, uh, you know, intimate and uh, amazing relationships and, and people that I've met throughout the process. And when there's a cancer diagnosis, there's a whole psychology that goes into that, not only for the person, uh, which, you know, we talk about kind of the stages as we talk about with grief of denial and then ultimately getting acceptance. Uh, but there are a lot of emotions that go with that anger, fear, frustration, hope, uh, you know, and so people uh, are looking for what it is that they can do. And conventional care uh, in, in healthcare often focuses on getting rid of the cancer, right, and trying to eliminate the cancer, which is a goal for most people. At the same time, what does the person do when they're not in the doctor's office or getting their treatment? How do they live their life, right? And oftentimes, comprehensive programs haven't necessarily delved into that deeply enough. And so I feel privileged to have the opportunity to do that with patients. So um, what do you tell them about nutrition? What are the types of things that a cancer patient needs to be thinking of? Well, I think the thing about nutrition is one, it, what cancer patients need to do uh, is often the same thing that most of us need to do, uh, you know, which is not follow what we call the SAD or standard American diet. Uh, and, you know, I, I say that I'm an American, I'm a proud American. Uh, and at the same time, I will say that the Western diet actually has a much greater risk for potential uh, for inflammation, chronic disease, cardiovascular disease, and cancer. So what I talk to them about is actually how do they optimize their nutrition, right? What we feed grows. And for, before we were, you know, got onto this, I was telling you, my morning thought today was what we feed grows inside us, around us, and in others. And in this case, your nutrition really has a big impact. I think one of the best resources is Harvard's uh, Healthy Eating Plate. It's a fantastic resource that's evidence-guided and updated uh, regularly based on current information. And the fundamental of one thing to know in nutrition is 
trying to optimize the vegetable consumption that a person can have. Uh, and the recommendation would actually be seven to nine servings, although recent data suggests that even as few as five servings a day actually has benefit for cancer patients. So healthy eating is probably even more important during this time. Well, and that's the thing to remember is that, you know, there are no bad food groups. You know, a lot of uh, people kind of, you know, take out a whole food group from their nutrition. You know, you think about carbohydrates, fats, and proteins. There are no food, bad food groups, but there are bad foods within each group. And when it comes to nutrition, four words to remember, portion, proportion, preparation, and timing, right? So carbohydrates can go down as the day goes on. They don't have to be completely eliminated. They're great fuel, but you don't fill your car up when you pull back in the garage. You fill it before you go on a long trip. So you can front load the carbs. Again, simple sugars aren't your friends, but healthy whole foods. If you're actually thinking about looking at ingredients, just think about that for a second, because we need whole foods. You're not thinking about ingredients on a box. You're actually looking at the whole food itself and combining it and preparing it in a healthy manner. Uh, and so that's really, really important. Uh, when we think about fats, it's healthy fats, right? So uh, when you think about bacon, sausage, ham, a lot of the processed meats, they tend to trigger inflammation uh, and potential for precancerous change. So we talk about healthy fats uh, and healthy proteins as a great way for people to eat. Now, what about exercise? Can that be meaningful for someone who's in cancer treatment? Maybe they're exhausted by cancer treatment um, or don't have the strength that they used to have. Can it still be useful? So there's great data that shows that, uh, and especially with breast cancer, uh, that people who exercise regularly uh, after their cancer diagnosis have a reduced rate of recurrence or reduced risk of recurrence. Uh, of cancer. So we know exercise is value. Uh, the real question is what is exercise, you know, and uh, it can mean different things to different people. So what we recommend generally, and what the WHO has done looking at a lot of people, hundreds of thousands of people, is recommend moderate intense physical activity. And moderate intense means going hard enough that you can speak in small sentences, but not have long-winded conversations, and not so you're to the degree where you might feel like you're going to pass out, right? So that moderate intensity is variable depending on the person and depending on how they feel that day. So some days it might be more intense because I'm feeling it, right? And some days it might be less intense because I'm feeling drained. And so for cancer patients, especially during things like chemotherapy where they might feel really fatigued and drained, the point is to do some degree of activity as you can and listen to your body. There may be, for some people, a, a, a real severe response to the chemotherapy. And if they need rest and their body needs rest, that's what they offer for a few days or during that cycle of chemotherapy. But then getting back into it, you know, one step at a time. And as simple as walking is good enough. It doesn't have to be paying hundreds of dollars to join gyms. Uh, or buying, you know, $2,000 and $5,000 treadmills and bicycles. I mean, if that's what you need for your motivation, different story. But the bottom line is your body is your best resource for physical activity. You just got to use it. Now, stress levels may be higher for someone when they're diagnosed with cancer. Um, what advice do you have for managing stress at a very stressful time? I had one lady who came into me with a lot of stress, you know, and I said, wow, you know, it sounds like there's just more and more. Do you mind just writing it down for me? Uh, and let's get back together again next week. I put the appointment at the end of the day, so there would be no time crunch. Uh, and she came back with eight pages and, you know, a standard primary care family doc visit. And I was like, wow, I'm glad we have, you know, extra time. Uh, but what we talked about was splitting her stresses into two categories things that she could do something about and things that she couldn't control. And when she came back, one page was hers to own. The other seven were stresses in her life, but things that she couldn't directly control, things like other people's reactions, right? Or other people's stresses, you know, that famous saying, not my monkeys kind of a thing. And so what it came back to was every time her mind went to the things she couldn't control for the same time and energy, she could come back to her list of action items, take one thing, make a plan, get it done, and then mark it off. And every night for a month, she would look at how much she got done that day, 
to acknowledge to herself that she was actively living her life versus being stuck in the stuff that she couldn't control anyway, right? And so it allowed her to then start to focus on as things were coming, instead of absorbing them, dealing with them upfront and knowing, you know, steps A and B are mine, but then beyond that, it's out of my control. And so it allows us to recognize and feel more fulfilled about the fact that there are choices that we can make, but there are some things that are beyond our control. And if we keep focusing on those things, will it feel even more overwhelmed, right? And so when it comes to cancer and for cancer patients, you know, once you get a diagnosis, you know, what is it that you can do to help yourself? You know, you can get great information. You know, you can consult with your doctor and your specialist or your healthcare provider. And you can even get a second opinion, right? Until you feel comfortable in the connection and the relationship. Uh, and then they're going to recommend based on what the diagnosis is and what the presentation is, what they feel medically will serve your body and your life best. But even between those steps, there are things you can do, right? As we talked about nutrition, exercise, the simple thing, there's a you know famous Buddhist saying that, you know, when children are young, what's the one thing that you can teach them? And they talk about, well, we can teach them how to breathe, right? Exactly. And that sounds like you're really putting the management into stress management when you talk about laying out your stressors and owning the ones that you can. Let me remind listeners that this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Koshal Nanavati. He's the Medical Director of Integrative Therapy at Upstate, and we're talking about wellness for people with cancer. Now, I want to ask you what you mean by spiritual wellness and why this might be important even to someone who doesn't consider themselves religious. Well, the thing about it is, is the word spiritual, the word, you know, religion, religion is more a specific term. And spiritual wellness is really about helping one to understand what words like contentment and peace mean to them. Contentment and peace um, at a time when someone maybe is facing more medical treatment than they've ever had to face. Um, I just wonder how much of an impact contentment and peace may have on the care itself. Well, and it makes a big, I think that's a great point that you bring up because, you know, initially there, there are, as we said, a lot of distressing emotions that come along with this, not only for the person, but for their caregivers as well, right? And so I know I try to meet with their caregivers and connect with them also because oftentimes they're getting secondary communication. Uh, and yet they're going through a journey as well. And so redefining that idea of contentment and peace oftentimes comes back to a simple thing like, you know, for today, how do we make today a more contented and peaceful day? Uh, it can come to the this hour. It can come but down to in this moment, how can I feel more contented and peace? And that's why when I brought up the breath, you know, that's a simple practice. People talk about things like, Oh, you know, with the spirituality, meditation and mindfulness. And I had one person tell me, you know, who didn't really understand it and said, well, you know, I can't, it's really against my religion to meditate. And I said, well, it really comes to deep breathing, right? Optimizing your breath, which is actually belly breathing. Um, and with that, simply, if people can do this right now, put your hand on your stomach and when you take a deep breath in, the goal is that when you breathe in, the belly pushes out. And when you breathe out, the belly pushes back or back in, right? And you breathe in slow, breathe out slower. But the science says that when you do that for 10 straight minutes of just gently breathing in and out with your belly, cortisol, the stress hormone goes down. But that affects cortisol, affects blood pressure, blood sugar, inflammation, your immune system, and precancerous change. Serotonin, so you think about antidepressants and anti-anxiety medicines, lifting up serotonin, just breathing this way, serotonin goes up, that gets converted to melatonin. And in fact, serotonin has more receptors in the gut than the brain, that affects your nutrient absorption and your toxin release, right? That melatonin we think about for sleep, people use it for sleep, it actually boosts your immune system. Dopamine goes up, so, you know, that actually helps you feel, get better and, and your mood. Uh, and, you know, it's a better way to get doped up than using bad substances, right? Uh, and then your adrenaline, your fight, flight, or freeze response actually calms down. Now, Harvard, interestingly, looked at people for eight weeks where these people averaged 24 minutes at a time of this type of breathing, and they were doing functional MRIs of their brain every week, 
And by the end of the eight weeks, density in different parts of the brain and the flow actually changed, which means you are having a cellular impact just with breath. Right? So suddenly that wisdom of the, the Buddha saying makes a lot of sense because at any given moment, regardless of what we're facing, within us we have potential to make choice, right? And that choice is as simple as just taking a nice, slow, deep breath, which actually does have a calming effect. And that allows us to gain clarity of thought. It allows us to be able to focus better, to redefine our purpose, and then to think about how do we reinforce this body, this mind, this spirit, and it comes through the, the core four, the things that we've talked about. The first Sunday in June is celebrated as National Cancer Survivors Day. So I wanted to ask you, what does National Cancer Survivors Day mean to you? I think it's a very important thing. You know, we think about on this day, uh, uh, we are reminded uh, of the journey that cancer patients endure uh, and that their caregivers endure. And so we celebrate, uh, you know, the journey. And at the same time, we also remember those who may have passed, uh, but who also endured that journey. So I know at Upstate uh, and around the country in, in different cities uh, and different organizations, National Cancer Survivorship Day is, is a day where we actively acknowledge uh, the journey of cancer uh, and all those involved in it, including the patients, their caregivers, our community as a whole and organizations that support cancer patients, a lot of volunteer organizations that support cancer patients, and the healthcare providers who, you know, navigate the journey with the patients. I think it's really a community uh, awareness and celebration and acknowledgement uh, that cancer is a global issue. It's, it's a human issue, uh, and it's also a planetary issue because the environment plays a great role uh, for many different types of cancerous developments. Well, you've given us a lot to think about. Thank you to Dr. Koshal Nanavati. He's the Assistant Dean of Wellness at Upstate, an Assistant Professor of Family Medicine and Medical Director of Integrative Therapy. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air. Reducing stroke risk, next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. You may be unaware that you have a condition that increases your risk for stroke. Today, I'm speaking about stroke risk with a stroke specialist, Dr. Hesham Masood. He's an assistant professor of neurology, neurosurgery, and radiology at Upstate Medical University and a member of the comprehensive stroke team at Upstate University Hospital. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Masood. Hi, thanks for having me back. I think a lot of people are unaware that they have an increased risk for stroke. So let's talk about some of the risk factors. If a parent or a grandparent or a sibling has a stroke, does that make you at higher risk? I think it's it's not necessarily the fact that they had a stroke uh, that I'm thinking about so much as I wonder if this family has the history of a stroke at a young age. And for me, young is less than 55. In the same way that if you have a heart attack less than the age of 55 or, you know, in your 40s, it's like, oh, there's some genetic problem here potentially with how they're handling cholesterol at a young age. And so they're getting this accelerated cholesterol buildup in arteries that you typically would see in people who aren't doing well with cholesterol when they're 70. You know, this person gets it early because their genetic expression of that is, you know, is a little bit higher in terms of the dysfunction of handling cholesterol. So, you know, so so this is that's the big time point. So if we're talking about, you know, a, a family history and we're talking about beyond 55, then then that's still relevant to me in the sense that I wonder what risk factors were the ones that led to that stroke event, because I wonder if this is a patient with a family history of high blood pressure, because in the same way that you can have accelerated problems um, from cholesterol and, and, and other uh, genetic dysfunction uh, that manifests in different ways, you can also have a problem with your blood pressure control that's just inherent to your genes, which means that you have to be a little bit more vigilant. 
And, uh, and, and so, you know, it may be a surrogate for an uncontrolled risk factor in you if you had, you know, um, a family history where everybody in your family had high blood pressure and some of them had high blood pressure so bad they had a stroke, you know, then I would be kind of interested in, in making sure that I, you know, if I'm, if I'm this person that I would, you know, check on my blood pressure because blood pressure is this thing that's in the background. You don't know about it unless it's bad enough to manifest and and for it to manifest clinically you know in a way that is actionable for people you know for just a normal individual is a headache right crazy blurred vision some sort of end organ damage you know um and so you know when you're dealing with that it's kind of indicative of a point that you never want it to cross and so if you have a family history of high blood pressure then you want to know what your blood pressure is um, and so in the same way that, you know, a diabetic would want to know what their blood sugar control is. So you check your blood pressure twice a day or once a day, depending on what your risk is, um, just as a way to sort of monitor yourself. If you do have high blood pressure or high cholesterol for that matter, but it's controlled by medication, does that eliminate that risk of stroke for you? So it definitely lowers the risk of stroke if you have blood pressure that is controlled. Uh, absolutely. Uh, it's a very important thing, though, to not assume that your blood pressure is under control to the goal that you need it to be to manifest that improvement without having some sort of feedback loop. And that feedback loop is only as good as how many times you engage it. So if you only look at your blood pressure when your uh, visit with the primary care doctor at best, maybe every six months, uh, in, in, in a, you know, in a good schedule, then that's not enough data points, right? You can, those could be particularly good days or particularly bad days. Uh, so that's why you need to, uh, make sure that you have more data points that are actionable. And I always say twice a day, because, you know, there is a circadian rhythm of the body and that has an expression on multiple different variables at different times of the day. And the big two time points are morning and uh, uh, before bed or, or nighttime. And so I would say getting those two data points are gonna give me uh, high high quality information that allocates for an internal variability. Uh, and, and then the more data points I get, the more uh, I'm gonna be able to, to make some informed decisions. And and the great great news for high blood pressure patients is that you are so empowered to lower your blood pressure outside of just the medications that your doctor prescribes. Uh, uh, and, and if you are successful in this regard, you may even be able to get off of blood pressure medications. Obviously, under this controlled setting of knowing where your blood pressures are constantly uh, getting that feedback. And that's because the diet uh, and exercise um, lifestyle modification is so impactful. The diet that I always uh, uh, share with people, uh, and you can look this up on a government website, uh, is the diet aimed at stopping hypertension or the DASH diet. Um, and so I'm always telling my stroke patients, uh, uh, you know, and I have a, a smaller sort of templated version of this that, that everybody who sees me gets um, uh, in their wrap-up sheet uh, printout. Uh, but, you know, you can look it up. It's, 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 uh, it's a widely known uh, um, diet. So you're empowered to sort of act on this data that you're collecting as well. You're not just collecting data for other people to, to act on. Why is someone with diabetes at higher risk for stroke? It's accelerated aging of the, of the blood vessels. Um, that, that is the, uh, that's the real culprit mechanism of diabetes, uh, on, on the, uh, on the, uh, st stroke risk profile. So I've seen, uh, patients with uh, accelerated aging in, in inside the arteries of the brain. So we call it intracranial, um, uh, disease. And that disease can be related to sort of accelerated plaque buildup. Uh, and that's re resultant from, from this, uh, aging process that's accelerated with poor, poorly controlled diabetes. Can you explain how someone with sleep apnea may have a higher risk for stroke? You know, sleep apnea is 1 of those things that is so underappreciated uh, 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 and underdiagnosed and, and, and can be such a huge difference maker from a lifestyle standpoint in terms of cognitive clarity and energy levels. So, so I'm, I'm glad you're bringing it up just in isolation. I would encourage anybody who, who, who is, who's been told that they snore, uh, in a way where they're choking or they're really sleepy to really talk about their primary care uh, with their primary care doctor and, and, uh, and, and get this done. Um, 
uh, if they need it, they, they will be grateful for it. Um, but it, but what it can do is essentially when you are not, so what is sleep apnea? It's obstructive. So, so sleep apnea essentially means that you're not breathing during sleep and obstructive means it's due to some sort of obstruction. Now, you know, we have a, a sleep specialist at Upstate um, who can certainly talk uh, a, a lot in more detail about the further sub, sub uh, classifications of different sleep apneas. But essentially, if you're not breathing, uh, multiple times while you're asleep, that's going to have a response on your uh, brain and your system. And so in meaning, you know, when you can't breathe, what happens? Your blood pressure gets up, right? And so now you're going to have these spikes in blood pressure that are happening multiple times, right? You're, you're also going to have your brain not get oxygenated well multiple times. Um, and so these things can cause types of disease and strokes um, risk just from kind of elevating a risk of of, uh, of something like high blood pressure manifesting to, to real dysfunction levels. Um, and it can also sort of be associated with um, uh, heart rhythm irregularities. And one of the big ones is the atrial fibrillation for stroke, where the heart beats or, or you know, fibrillates in a way where you get turbulence of blood flow and that turbulence sort of activates a clotting and then that clot gets pumped out by by the heart which is a, you know a pump to organs and then gets carried to the brain you know um and so so that that's a, another way for that risk to to potentially um you know uh, be a little bit higher uh with sleep apnea so so m multiple multiple ways this is Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Hesham Masood. He's an assistant professor of neurology, neurosurgery, and radiology with expertise in stroke care. Why are African Americans and Hispanics at higher risk for stroke than Caucasians? I always think about two two big factors in terms of like when when we start seeing trends or you know populations that have more of or less than. You know, and so, so, you know, even in, 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 in brain aneurysms, you know, for whatever reason, you know, Japanese people or, or people with Finnish blood tend to have aneurysms that rupture, you know, even though that the majority of an aneurysm of aneurysms don't rupture. But if you're Japanese or, you know, Finnish and you have an aneurysm, then you're weighted differently in terms of risk of rupture. So there's this genetic component. So, so it's, it's this balance, I think, of, you know, your, your genetic uh, uh, expression that's sort of uh, modulated by your environment, right? Um, and so, you know, you can have a predisposition because of this genetic predisposition towards having this, um, you know, almost like this Achilles heel, you know, and then it can be exploited uh, based on you know, the lifestyle or the environmental conditions. And I think it's really just sort of an interplay of those two things uh, when when you're when you start seeing you know things trending to one side or, or not so you know classically um, um, uh, African Americans Hispanics North Africans uh, you know I'm Egyptians people like myself um, um, uh, Indian subcontinent um, Asians uh, tend to have a little bit more of the uh, uh, atherosclerotic disease which is essentially you know plaque buildup of the arteries you know sort of crud on the inside of the arteries but uh, you know, you know, everybody gets it, but we tend to get them more or, you know, th those populations, I should say, tend to get them more in the brain uh, than outside the brain. So intracranial versus extracranial. And then the extracranial tends to be some of the uh, Caucasian populations that are sort of European uh, uh, descent. So, so um, it's kind of interesting that there is this interplay of, of genetic um, predisposition. And then you have these environmental factors, sort of like tobacco smoking, or uncontrolled high blood pressure because of uh, uh, diet uh, and quality of, of, of food availability, of the disparity in delivery uh, of healthcare, um, you know, sort of related to economic um, disparities uh, and access. Um, and so, so, uh, so I think it's just sort of an interplay of those of those three things. But you know, the genetic predisposition is one that we pay attention to, and and we sort of validate multiple times, especially with this intracranial, extracranial atherosclerotic disease uh, example that's that's one that's uh, pretty pretty well uh, seen you touched on some things that people can do to reduce their risk the, the dash diet um, blood pressure monitoring making sure if you have sleep apnea that it's being treated um, what are some other things that people can do to reduce their risk and if you had to pick one thing that's most important what what would it be i never like to be narrowed down to just one thing is it James Carville who is who is the the political advisor to to Bill Clinton who said it's the economy stupid? 
right? Mm -hmm. uh, so, so I would say it's probably the hypertension. Um, so high blood pressure, high blood pressure, high blood pressure. Um, and, and, but, but really I would say, you know, if, if you, if you have the, the smoking on board, um, then, then any, any kind of smoking that that's sort of like, you know, cause high blood pressure is this, is this thing that you, you know, you're going to work on with blood pressure medications and with a diet and exercise that you can be very successful, but smoking is sort of like, you know, damp, you know, cutting yourself and damaging yourself actively. You know, um, in in a way that really manifests uh, in stroke, uh, in a big way, uh, very synergistic with high blood pressure too. So, so I don't want to diminish from uh, stopping smoking by just picking high blood pressure, um, but but high blood pressure is a, a huge is 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 big big bag risk factor, uh, and smoking is as well. If someone's at higher risk because of a strong family history of of people having strokes at young ages. Um, is there anything else that they can do in addition to, are there any medications to explore? Yeah. Common sense is going to be what works out uh, uh, in this scenario in the sense that, you know, if, if I have a genetic predisposition, then I'm going to, then even more reason for me to sort of get ahead of the curve when it comes to blood sugar control, cholesterol, high blood pressure, so on and so forth. Because being healthier there is going to be even more uh, um, impactful uh, and beneficial for you. Um, if if we're talking about a genetic predisposition that's related to a clotting disorder, then I you know if I'm a young person and I have family members who've had blood clotting that happened spontaneously at a young age, uh, in in ways that were sort of d dysfunctional enough for there to be multiple miscarriages or multiple clots to the lungs and to the legs multiple times at a very young age, so on and so forth. Uh, then I, I may want to be proactive and get genetic testing, but it really is is really specific to what are we talking about with the genetic predisposition, you know? Um, and most of the time when it's a clotting disorder, it manifests really early if it's dysfunctional enough to be the big uh, factor um, that manifests the disease being the, 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 the genetic predisposition, then you, you get it real early. Um, so, so most of the time it's, it's people not realizing they have a genetic predisposition to having poorly controlled blood sugar and cholesterol and blood, a high blood pressure and being proactive there is, 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 is totally dependent on the, on the patient, you know. Thank you to Dr. Hesham Masood. He's an assistant professor of neurology, neurosurgery, and radiology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a pulmonary physiologist talks about what severe COVID does to the lungs. Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today I'm speaking with an expert in breathing, and we're going to get into great detail about acute respiratory distress syndrome since that's what he studied for most of his career. Professor Gary Neiman has been a pulmonary physiologist at Upstate for more than 40 years. Welcome to HealthLink on Air. Thank you, Amber, and thank you for having me. Professor Neiman, I know you do a lot of teaching and research, and you also have a long-term collaboration with the medical director at the R. Adams Kelly Shock Trauma Center in Baltimore. Can you tell us about what the two of you are focusing on in your research? Uh, what we're focusing on is acute respiratory distress syndrome, or ARDS, and uh, we study both the, uh, the pathology or the pathophysiology and the treatments of that disease. Uh, it's a very serious disease. Uh, it actually kills more people than HIV or breast cancer every year. Uh, however, it's caused uh, after a systemic uh, inflammation, like a blood infection or severe trauma. So often the patient's family don't know that they actually died of ARDS. They died of the infection or the, or the accident. Uh, what Dr. Habashi has done um, is study how to mechanically ventilate these patients with ARDS. Uh, the disease causes a lot of fluid to build up in the lung and the lungs become very stiff so that the patient can no longer breathe using his respiratory muscles and has to be put on 
a mechanical ventilator. And what, uh, what we and others have found out is if you set the mechanical ventilator incorrectly, it actually increases the mortality of ARDS. However, if it's set properly, it will reduce the mortality. So what I'm really featuring, uh, working on with Dr. Hibashi is uh, trying to understand and improve protective mechanical ventilation for patients with acute lung injury. Interesting. And breathing is something that, you know, we all kind of take for granted, you know, it just happens, but it's more than just taking oxygen in, right? There's a lot more to it than that. Yes. The, uh, the pathology of, of ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome, uh, what happens is your lungs start to flood actually with fluid and you no longer can use your inspiratory muscles to actually pull a breath in. So what we have to do at that time is uh, put a tube down the patient uh, into their trachea and then place these patients on mechanical ventilation. And uh, the, mechan the way you set the mechanical ventilator we're finding out can either uh, greatly help the patient or it can cause an unintentional secondary injury known as ventilator-induced lung injury or VILI. And that's what we're trying to avoid. You mentioned fluid. Where does the fluid come from? Uh, what happens uh, in ARDS is that uh, there is a hyperreactive inflammation uh, in response to an injury. Um, could be trauma, could be a severe bleeding, it could be a blood infection, it could be direct injury like smoke inhalation or pneumonia. And the capillaries, obviously there's millions of capillaries in the lung to exchange oxygen and carbon dioxide. Uh, and they become leaky. And you, actually your own, uh, the fluid in your blood starts to leak from the capillaries into the lung. Now is ARDS, is that what happens to people who start having difficulty breathing or, or, or what causes this to happen? Uh, uh, ARDS is caused by some kind of a serious uh, outside injury. Uh, it could be a, a trauma, um, like a car accident with major tissue injury. It could be major bleeding, hemorrhagic shock. Uh, most often it's caused by a blood infection uh, known as sepsis or direct uh, lung infection known as pneumonia. And uh, so these are the, the, major, uh, the major components. And, and ARDS, uh, once it becomes serious enough to be called ARDS, uh, will require mechanical ventilation and uh, very lethal injury um, the mortality for a patient with ARDS is around 40%. So it's, uh, it's a very serious problem. Uh, also, it uh, affects more people, kills more people every year than either HIV or breast cancer. So it's, uh, it, it's a very serious problem that, uh, uh, that Dr. Abashi and I are uh, very actively trying to reduce that mortality level. Does it affect uh, all of the ages, the young and the old equally, or do you see this more in older people? Uh, it does affect all ages, uh, depending on the seriousness of the trauma. Uh, obviously, the older patient, uh, if they have comorbidities uh, like emphysema or diabetes, uh, it can play a bigger role. Uh, actually, one of the uh, uh, when they, they identified the syndrome, uh, there were a lot of our soldiers in Vietnam were developing ARDS, and it's because they would have these horrific injuries out in the field, and then they would medevac them in. They wouldn't die of, uh, of heart failure in the field. Uh, they would bring them back to the MASH unit, and they were getting this strange disease where the lungs would fill with fluid. Um, so often they call it Da Nang lung. And that's sort of in the, uh, it actually wasn't identified as a syndrome until 1967. So um, it, it can affect young, healthy adults also. Now, it's treated uh, solely with a ventilator, or is there more to the treatment? Uh, strangely enough, um, there's not a single pharmaceutical that has been shown to be effective for ARDS, uh, with the exception of steroids. And what steroids do is it calms down the inflammation so the capillaries aren't as leaky. Uh, but there were several drugs that were released for ARDS, but have subsequently been pulled. So really the, uh, the only uh, treatment is support uh, and the major support is putting them on the mechanical ventilator. So what we try to do is, is maintain oxygen and CO2 levels adequately until the patient's lung heals itself. 
and then we can take the ventilator off. But really, uh, it really, it's only support at this point. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with pulmonary physiologist, Professor Gary Neiman. We're talking about acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS. The virus that causes COVID-19 is SARS-CoV-2, and SARS stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. How similar is Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome to ARDS? Um, actually, the, uh, the SARS-induced ARDS is termed ARDS by the clinical community. Um, and uh, actually, we've added just a C to it uh, for COVID-induced ARDS or, or CARDS. Uh, the, um, it causes leaky capillaries, it causes the lung to collapse, and the only treatment uh, is uh, mechanical ventilation just as in uh, uh, bacterial ARDS. There are a couple of major differences. Uh, for whatever reason, the SARS uh, virus um, uh, makes the patient lose their, their very uncomfortable feeling when they lack oxygen. Uh, just as if you held your breath for a minute, uh, you'd feel very uncomfortable and very oxygen starved. Uh, the patients with uh, SARS lose that and they have very low oxygen and don't know it. Uh, the other thing the virus does is it, it alters a lung's ability to match ventilation with perfusion. Our lung has an amazing ability to match blood flow to, uh, to where the uh, air is in the lung. Uh, but that's lost so that just very small areas of collapse can cause a very large decrease in oxygen in the, in the uh, SARS patient. Now, do I understand that your team has developed a novel ventilation strategy? Uh, it actually was developed by Dr. Bashi in Maryland, uh, and he, uh, he, he developed it clinically. He, he was uh, uh, the ECMO director, and that stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, and that's when a ventilator no longer works, uh, and you have to have to actually exchange the oxygen with a machine, much like on cardiopulmonary bypass. And these lungs are very, very sick, and he developed a um, strategy called Time Control Adaptive Ventilation, or TCAV, and it's a method to set the airway pressure release ventilation mode. Uh, so uh, we'll just call it TCAV, and, and what it is, uh, it sort of flips the, the, uh, the ventilation around. Right now, we take a short inspiration and a long expiration, and what Dr. Bashi did is he just flipped that around. It has a long inspiration, so the patient's lung is full of air for a very long period of time, and then a very short expiration, and then a very long inspiration. And why does that work on an ARDS patient is because uh, the lung is, is filling with fluid and starting to collapse. So if you can keep the pressure in the lung for longer periods of time, it tends to reopen the lung. Interesting. Uh, have you compared the two methods? Is one more effective than the other for someone with COVID? Uh, there's only one paper published thus far on COVID patients, and it was a, a study on uh, published just on 10 patients, and these are 10 patients had failed on the standard of care, and they converted them to the TCAV method, and in all of the patients, they improved their oxygenation um, and, uh, and their gas exchange, and they were, uh, um, they got off the ventilator quicker, and they needed less uh, sedation. So it was a very small study, but it indicated that at least the lungs seemed to like it better. Uh, Dr. Bashi and many of my other clinical colleagues have used um, the, the TCAV on, on their COVID patients with really great success, but none of that is published at this point. With this new strategy, is there still a concern about ventilator-induced lung injury? Uh, yes, it's, uh, it's actually a major problem. Um, in uh, 2000, a paper was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in which they showed uh, just a reduction of the pressure that's delivered to the patient's lung and the size of the volume, uh, termed the tidal volume, the amount of air that goes in and out with each breath, uh, significantly reduced the uh, mortality associated with ARDS from 40% down to 31%. Um, unfortunately, uh, in the last 21 years, that was published in 2000, most of the uh, retrospective uh, analyses looking if the uh, the strategy still works have shown that it really uh, doesn't and that the ventilation the uh, 
mortality is still up around 40%. Uh, so we and others feel that uh, this ventilator-induced lung injury uh, is still a significant problem in the ARDS patient and new ventilation strategies uh, must be developed in order to reduce ARDS-related mortality. Regarding TCAV or the time-controlled adapted ventilation, is this a new way of adjusting a, a regular ventilator or is it a new type of ventilator? It's a, a new way of, of uh, adjusting a specific mode on the ventilator. And there's various modes uh, on the ventilator. There's a, a volume mode where the clinician sets the volume that goes into the patient or a pressure mode where the clinician sets the pressure uh, that goes into the patient. Uh, so this is a uh, a way to set and adjust just the airway pressure release ventilation mode, uh, and it's uh, the the or APRV. Uh, the APRV mode has been around for almost thirty years, but Dr. Bashi has refined it in at uh, shock trauma, and uh, came up with this time controlled adaptive ventilation method. Uh, that we're finding in the lab and he's finding in the clinic and uh, some at Upstate are using it in the clinic and we're finding it very lung protective. And uh, we feel that it will significantly reduce ARDS-related mortality because it will eliminate or at least minimize ventilator-induced lung injury or VILI. Well, before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you to explain what's happening to the lungs of people who develop a severe case of COVID-19 and who end up needing ventilator support. Why were doctors earlier in the pandemic saying that patients would do better if they were placed on their stomachs? Again, remember that the, the lung is filling with fluid and it's collapsing. Uh, and when we're laying on our back, the heart sets on top of the lung and it, help, and it adds weight and it, and it collapses more of the lung. By flipping the patient over, now the heart's right at your breastbone. Uh, and so it's the weight isn't on the lung and that allows that lung to expand easier during mechanical ventilation. Uh, also, the, uh, the windpipe is sort of slanted downward. So if you're laying on your stomach, the fluids that are building up, the fluid in the, in the lungs building up can be more easily drained out of the, out of the chest. So it, uh, the proning, what is called pulling on, on their face down, uh, tends to allow the lung to inflate at a lower pressure. And it's very important in a, in a disease that's causing lung collapse. Is it basically gravity that's being used? Um, it's gravity used in the uh, uh, in the prone position. Uh, when you prone a patient, um, the the when you're in the supine, a lot of the lung tissue is uh, near your spine, not near your back. So uh, it, it becomes sort of very heavy. As I uh, mentioned, the uh, patient develops a lot of fluid in their lung called pulmonary edema, and that weighs down on the uh, on the lung. And also, if you think about it, your heart uh, is right next to your breastbone and it sets on top of the lung when you're laying on your back. But if you turn the patient over and lay them on their on their stomach, uh, the heart is now it's just it's resting just on your breastbone and takes all that weight off the lung. So uh, the prone position, uh, for the most part, it, it is just it's a gravity shifting. Uh, and it uh, it helps the lung due to the anatomy and the anatomy as it sits inside the chest. Uh, also, the uh, uh, by putting the patient on their stomach, it helps some of that fluid drain out of the lung, um, and it'll help uh, uh, recover faster. So, just to clarify, prone means on your stomach, and supine is laying on your back. That's correct. Well, I appreciate your expertise. Thank you so much to Professor and Pulmonary Physiologist Gary Neiman. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Poet Jennifer Holy's poetry appears in Panoply, Stone Canoe, and Smartish Pace. She was a 2018 AWP mentee and a recent winner of the Silver Needle Press Poetry Prize. She sent us a beautiful villanelle, which also serves as an elegy and loving tribute to a friend. Here is Two Arts. 
I walk the path where all your pieces lay, down Risley's Gorge, where you buried your art just out of sight, your clay returned to clay. You hid your sculptures off the trodden way. I search, but I'm not quite sure where to start along the path where all your pieces lay. You'll dig them up when you come back, you say. You just can't ship them, they will fall apart. Just out of sight, your clay returned to clay. I hope you might have left one here today by accident. No, you were far too smart. I walk the path where all your pieces lay. You disinterred them when you came to stay. I had no idea when you would depart. Just out of sight, your clay returned to clay. For your memorial, we put them on display. I spoke about you, but I did not have the heart to walk the path where all your pieces lay. Just out of sight, your clay returned to clay. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, did you know Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell and Florence Nightingale were frenemies? If you missed any of today's show, or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.